I think we're best looking for some sort of a cold open. Okay. In the um, course of the conversation. Okay. Rather than trying to have some sort of a scripted yeah, that's monologue. Probably a good Saturday idea. Saturday Night Live kind of thing. Yeah. I think that was just our cold open. Welcome to the Play Ed Podcast, where we explore cultivating connections through play. Hello and welcome. Good morning or whatever time it is wherever you are listening to this. Uh, this is the Play Ed Podcast and I am your host, Laura. And I'm Chris. And we are today diving into an area of... Looking into how do we incorporate games into our school life and the thought that the best way to do this was to take a concrete example of what we did this year. Did you want to kind of describe what we're doing? Well, sure. I mean, we had some friends over the weekend uh, come to, to supper and we hung out and our kids played with their kids and um, relaxed and had a good time. And in the course of it... Um, one of the visiting couple mentioned that, that they have a child who's struggling a bit with geography and um, wanted to know kind of what do we do? And, you know, we've got some programs and we've got some books and all, but a lot of what we do is games. Um, and so we talked about various games that can help with geography and some things came up like ticket to ride and there are various versions of that that can cover some kind of north american geography and some european geography i don't know that there's uh, an asian or australian edition of either of those but there might be some fan-made maps i can start looking at that while you're looking sounds good um but that sort of led to a more general discussion about kind of what games have we found really, really helpful with with geography specifically. Um, and given how much of our schooling is also focused on history, um, one of the ways we let our children into studying history and enjoying themselves while doing it was through the lens of archaeology. Uh, I, I was exposed to... Uh, archaeology of the classical Mediterranean world when I was in middle school um, and I was introduced to a delightful book by uh, David McAulay uh, who some of you may know from his castle cathedral pyramid which were also adapted in the PBS series uh, but he did a wonderful one somewhat poking fun at archaeology called Motel of the Mysteries, and that to me is still one of my favorite um, David McAuley books. Anyway, all this is sort of L.A. by way of Omaha in that one of our family favorites, a game called Thebes, put out by Queen Games, um, has been uh, a central element for a couple of years now because it combines that geographical map board um, so you start to understand not just names and places, but how do they fit together in terms of relative location. But 
you as a player are taking the role of an archaeologist in the early 20th century, digging up the treasures of antiquity in places like Egypt and Mesopotamia and Anatolia and Greece. And our kids love playing it. The older ones have gotten to the point where they don't actually need a parent around to sort of sit with them and walk them through the game, even if they've got some of the younger kids with them, because we've played it enough. Mm -hmm. um, but the the Thebes really kind of is, is a centerpiece of how we do things like history with geography with some other ancillary stuff like archaeology um and how the kids come to enjoy it and they want to play the game so i think today we're going to talk very specifically about thebes but as always we're going to make some reference to some of the other games so a couple of notes while you were talking i did go ahead and look up on amazon Yes, Ticket to Ride has so many expansion maps that you probably, if you're concerned about political geography, the basics of uh, coastlines and areas and at least a couple of major cities, you probably could get most of the world if you bought every one of their expansion maps. That would get pricey. It would get pricey. But, you but it's a lot of fun if you like Ticket to Ride. You could do it. And if you've got a train-obsessed child, which we have, um, you're probably going to find a Ticket to Ride for whatever geographic area you're trying to get to know. Um, and I've also seen it for a couple of fantasy maps. My personal favorite was the Island of Sodor expansion map that someone created. Oh, that would be awesome. Yes. if you Playing Ticket to Ride on the Island of Sodor. Yes. But the if... Ticket to Ride pieces don't have the little happy smiley faces that the Thomas the Tank Engine trains I'm do. I'm sure if you knew someone with a 3D printer, you could fix that. Oh, of course. You wouldn't even need like a model sculpt, etc. You just need a 3D printer these days. Yes. All right. One of these days, I will enter the 21st century, I promise. Yes, but... My quill pens and my clay pipes. I did want to mention one other thing we, we talked about with our friends about uh, geography while we were doing that, and that was an online game called GeoGuessr. Oh, that's right. And that is uh, a game that uses Google Earth and Google Street View, and it gives you a thing where you put it in and it drops you in a random place somewhere in the world. And they've got variations, like you could say, I only want to do Europe, um, if you're trying to work on European geography. And what it is, is that you have to use clues from your area that you're in. Does it appear like it's a place where you have to drive on the, on the left side of the road or the right side of the road? What languages are on the signposts? What is the terrain that you're in? To start getting clues as to what part of the world are you in, and then eventually make a guess your best guess as to where you actually are in the world. And I thought that from a viewpoint of trying to learn things like terrain, is this mountainous, desert, taiga, tundra, forest, rainforest, um, are you within the tropics? That was a great game that you could play with a child online that would help to start getting you an idea of modern political geography as well as terrain and landmarks and it's fun to play and can actually be pretty addictive. But 
Before we go too far, we had also discussed GMT Games' dominant species, which we found helpful with things like terrain features. Yeah. Uh, but that, I want to devote a whole episode And that one's more to, abstract on that side, yeah. since it's, it's helpful for understanding the relationship and role that those play, but it's definitely not a geography game proper if you're talking about it in terms of the geography of our world in particular. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. I think I also mentioned um, the, the Sid Meier Civilization video game series particularly Sid Meier's Civ Four, which I still play a lot of. Mm-hmm. Um, there is an, an Earth map uh, or a modded Earth map that's available that can help there. Um, but before we go too far, um, some of our listeners may not be sure what you mean when you specify political geography as opposed to what other kind of geography. Can you just very briefly elaborate on that before we dive into Thebes? Sure thing. Okay, so... The way I teach geography actually is usually not with games if I'm trying to talk about where in the world are we. I actually use a um, geography program and it gives you a map. It gives you a continent. It gives you the boundaries. So is it a detailed full color map? No, it's actually a little bit different. It's an empty map. An empty map. You have got the outline of the continent, and you have the out, the lines that draw the modern political boundaries of that map. Okay. It also has a couple of major geographic features. Really big rivers. The kind of rivers you can see from space. So the Mississippi in the North Nile, America. The Nile in Africa. The Danube or the Rhine in Europe. Um the most prominent features... The Yangtze and the yellow in China? Yes. Clearly I need to review my geography. Yes. Uh, it, my you... high school geography teacher, if he ends up listening to this, is going to be so sad. Because I, I killed geography in high school. And yeah, I've since forgotten it all. Somewhere in the... <laughs> you allowed it to be filled in with Middle Earth. Yeah, I probably did let it get filled in with Middle Earth and Kryn and... What was the Forgotten Realms at Greenwood's World? Anyway, lots of fantasy geography displaced real-world geography. Anyway, so what you have is you have a map, and over time you introduce more names of countries and major landmarks, and each time they, you have your children redraw the map, you have a couple more pieces that you fill in. And it's complemented with a couple of books that dive into the culture of that country as it is in the world today. Political geography is when you're concerning yourself with the names of countries, the names of capital cities. The other kind of aspect of geography is the things that are permanent to that place because countries come and go. Um, If you're looking at a map of the Mediterranean today, you're going to see names of countries like Algeria, um, Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, um, Israel. The modern nation state of Israel. Syria, Lebanon, um, Greece, Turkey. Cyprus, the divided island, Italy. And all of those are names of modern countries. Italy, as a country, did not exist 200 years ago. It was a series of city-states and... Independent principalities. And so, if you looked at a map from 1819, it would not have the same boundaries that you have today, but you would still have the Danube flowing through uh, Europe into Asia. You would still have the Nile running through Egypt. 
Yes, it goes into Asia. It flows. Oh, that's right. It flows into the Black Sea. Yes. I still remember being on a train car rattling over a bridge as we were leaving Vienna for Prague. Um, oh, what, 20 odd years ago with a friend of mine and his girlfriend. And she looked out the window and she goes, wow, that's a river. I was like, yes, it's a large river. And my friend said to his girlfriend, it's the Danube. And she goes, really? That's the Danube. Cool. And he, and he sits back and he looks at me with a smirk and he says, did it occur to you to question how I knew it was the Danube? She's like, well, you wouldn't lie to me, would you? At that point, I'm looking in the guidebook. I'm like, no, guys, it is the Danube. Because even by college, I had forgotten most of the geography I learned in high school. That's probably because you learned it without having any reason to want to know where the Danube was. Or why it was important to know what the Danube was. Well, I knew Caesar marched up to it when he was conquering Gaul, but... No, maybe that was the Rhine. Um, yeah, he, I mean, I know he did stuff with the Danube, but we're way off topic now. Yes. <laughs> Thebes. Thebes. And so there's going to be things that are permanent to geography. The outline of the Mediterranean doesn't change, even as the names of the countries do. And part of what I like about studying ancient history is you do discover, it's like, once upon a time, this country was not called turkey it was part of the persian empire and has had a bunch of different names over the last several millennia and so each time you're playing a game you're trying to learn not only what is it called now but what did it used to be called when you're diving into a history game and the thing about thebes is that it's interesting in that it's dealing with two periods of history at the same time you're both dealing with the history of the early 20th century as you're having a boom in archaeology, all of a sudden there's this race as people from all over the world, um, but primarily the European um, colonial powers colonial powers are racing around these sites in the Mediterranean. There's been a huge number of places where they've you've started to dig in and discover these treasures, and all of the museums want to have their their treasure that they can show off. So there are a number of sociopolitical reasons and historical reasons for why this boom in archaeology occurs in the 19th century. Setting a lot of that aside, fascinating as it is, the game itself um, is um, originally a German game, um, sometimes called a Euro game. Um, lots of... of Lovely, beautiful, beautifully illustrated pieces, high-quality game components, and um, it plays really, really well with four players. So there is a time limit to the game, um, but you take the role of one of four archaeologists, and they're color-coded. There's a yellow, a blue, a green, and a red uh, playing piece. And you have to decide how much time you're going to spend running around the major cities of early 20th century Europe. The game itself is set in between 1901 and 1903. So right on the cusp of the outbreak of the Great War a century ago. Um, well, a little more than a century ago as we record this now, since it's 2019. 
but each player gets a a um uh it's a it's a circular analog slide rule uh to to determine how much time they spend digging based on how much knowledge they've accumulated in the cities when they actually get out to the archaeological sites and you have to secure permits for your workers to dig um, which I thought was a, a delightful thing. And then the, the, the digging mechanism, I thought, is, was fascinating. Each region has a blind bag. And in the blind bag are the treasures you're trying to extract, as well as lots of chits that have uh, just sand or dirt printed on them. Um, and so it's, it's a way of getting your hands dirty without actually getting them dirty. Mm-hmm. So when you dig, you're told how many chits you can pull out of the blind bag based on that slide rule. Um, and then you blindly put your hand in, you pull out that number of chits, and you see if you got any treasures. Um, one of our sons spends almost no time in Europe collecting information. He makes a beeline to get his digging permits and start digging in the areas he cares about. He usually pulls up some of the best stuff. Um... The rest of us have followed a, a strategy of accumulating some knowledge and then heading out and digging, and our finds aren't always quite as good. Um, and then there's a couple who haven't quite learned that you need to balance that digging versus um, knowledge accumulation. Uh, but one of uh, our, our oldest uh, did try for a few games to just accumulate knowledge and go to academic conferences and see if he could... Uh, put together a winning point total that way. I think he ended up coming in second. Yes. Um, and that's one of the things that it's, is fascinating is that there's different ways to win the game because it is a point-based game and there's multiple ways to accumulate points. And it's a game that has a time limit. And so you're having to make decisions about how much time do you spend gathering knowledge before you dig, understanding that there's the very real chance that you might miss a window of opportunity if you spend too much time in preparation. That's a nice way to simulate the very real world experience that you have in archaeology that you may have a period of time where you have to dig and your permits may expire. You can only get so many seasons. Your money runs out. Your time runs out. And so you have to make the decision of, if you had more information, you might have a better chance at getting good treasures because you've got a better, more accurate idea of where to dig, what to dig. And the restrictions simulate that experience of, you might find better treasures if you get there first. You might find better treasures if you get there with more information. And it's just hard to tell which. But speaking of treasures, part of what I love is the idea that you can dig in and each of the five areas that you can dig has a number of significant historical artifacts that you can recover. And we, there's even a guide in the game that tells you a little bit about each of them. So you can dig in Mesopotamia, Palestine, Egypt, Greece, and Crete. Crete, yes. And since we have spent a lot of time dealing with the history in each of these areas, as the more we've played the games, the more we'll go through a game and one of our kids will go, oh, oh, I know that fresco from Crete. I recognize that from the Palace of Knossos. 
And they've seen it. They've seen it in videos that go into the archaeology that went into discovering the palace there and trying to recover information about that history and tie it to the Trojan War and what was the state of the, Mediter- of the Mediterranean Sea at that time. Were the Greeks subject to Crete? Was Crete subject to the, to the mainland Greeks? And as they've dug in, they'll start to recognize things. And that's ancient, ancient history. That's very ancient history. So we're talking before 1000 BC, so at least 3000 years ago? At least 3000 years ago. Okay. Um, there's, however, more modern ones. There's a uh, another thing you can dig up in Crete is the machine from Antikythera, sometimes known as the Antikythera mechanism. And that's a beautiful device made of wheels and cogs, and it's thought to be an astronomical device used for sailing. So again, like a slide rule of some kind that allows you to do complicated calculations. Mm -hmm. And we discovered that um, object when we were uh, watching a video on ancient astronomy. And so it helps to draw connections between different places and understand the role that archaeology places in gaining a better understanding of ancient places and peoples. But the one that is my personal favorite is from Egypt, and that's you can dig up the Narmer palette. We last summer decided that starting um, with last summer, we were going to go into a much more in-depth ancient history, both to try to get a sense of the scope of history but also to pick a place and work from the most ancient periods forward. And then as we've started to look at histories of other places, they can start to see the overlaps in different, um, in different periods. And the Narmer palette is one of the most important uh, items. Egyptian artifacts. Egyptian artifacts. It's around 3000 BC. It's believed to have been So that from, makes it over 5,000 years old. Yes, and it's from one of the earliest, I believe the earliest known um, um, Egyptian dynasty. It is a beautiful, fairly flat piece that's carved on both sides. And it was a stylized variant of the palettes that they used to grind makeup, primarily the kind of makeup that they put under their eyes to deal with the blinding sun that you get was in that Egypt. coal? Coal. Okay. Yes. It, it functioned the same way the, the black stuff that football players put under their Grease eyes paint. do. Grease paint. It, it functions the same way. It helps to deflect some of the, the, the sunlight so that it's easier to see. And that's coal, K-O-H-L, not C-O-A-L. Yes. The... K-O-H-L. Okay. Um, the, the Egyptians wore a lot of makeup. They used a palette to grind it. This was a ceremonial palette not used functionally. Um, and it... Uh, oh, so palette, like art palette. Yes. Like you mix colors on, like I'm watching Bob Ross and he mixes right on the palette. Right. Okay. Yes. Similar idea. It, you had one side where you would grind whatever material, mix it with grease, and create the makeup that they would wear. And this is a ceremonial version. It's, it's kind of stylized. It uses the shape of one of those makeup palettes, but it's carved um, in relief with... Um, pictures of Narmer, uh, this pharaoh, um, with him smiting his enemies. And so it's a, it's a political statement piece. Interesting. And our children recognized it. They recognized it from our videos on ancient Egyptian history that we had been watching, as well as the read-alouds that we had been reading that came, that had both pictures in book and a series of larger photographs that you could pass around of significant artifacts of ancient history. 
And so what I love is that it helps to tie things together, that we, when we're doing ancient history, we're not just playing games, we're not just reading books, we're not just watching videos, we're doing a series of different things to help reinforce ideas. And so this item is going to come up because it is a significant piece. It's a significant because it taught us about a period of history. It gave us names. It gave us a relative period of time. It taught us something about Egyptian culture. And so this game is a place to both reinforce what we've read elsewhere or provide a lead in where it's like, if you look at some of the items found in uh, uh, Palestine, there's one of them is called an ossuarium. Well, that's an interesting word. What is that? Well, that's a Latin word. It means a bone box. It's a casket. And so that's a starting point to start asking questions because if it's not a period that we've are, or place that we've already studied, it gives us an opening to look into say, well, that's an interesting thing. What's that? And now we've got something to go and research. Or it's a place where if we start studying that at a later period, when we hit Roman history, then we can go back and say, do you remember when we were playing Thebes and you got that? That came from this period of history, from the first century. It came from this period in time where these were the people living in this part of the world. And this was what their culture was like. And this was how they commemorated their dead, as opposed to what was happening 500 years prior. So we seem to be getting rather far afield from geography, but it, 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 is, it is fun to see how all those interconnections play out. But the thing about geography is that it's intimately tied to history. Geography is more than just maps. It's what we think of as geography, because if you took a geography class in school... As I did. And as I did, um, you had a class that was primarily concerned, and really the only thing you can easily test is maps. Can you draw the political boundaries? Can you draw the major landmarks? Okay, I know that the Alpine mountains in um, Europe are in this place, and I can identify the Danube, and I can identify the Rhine. Didn't, didn't your teacher focus on the Middle East, even though it wasn't part of the main curriculum yes, because I, the Gulf War, the first Gulf War broke out when you were yes, in... Yes, when I took, when I took uh, my, my uh, geography class was actually in middle school, and we were doing most of the world. I, I know I remember doing South America. I know I remember doing Europe. We probably tried to get most of the world into that one year of geography, which really is not bad. It's it's not a bad way to do that, to try to cram it all into one year, because you probably get more intensity um, and you get a reinforcement of other areas of the world that are more important to the history you're studying as you do this, as you encounter them in history class. But I think my school district's idea was get it in in middle school so that as you start encountering the upper level history classes, as you head into late middle school and into high school, you'd have a frame of reference and have okay. gone through the world at least once. But we in fact studied the, um, the modern political boundaries of the middle East because we were at war in Kuwait that year. And that was a case of we were seeing these maps on the television every night anyway. And his thought was, we should know where this place is in the world, especially since being a, uh, a community that was um, 
essentially a suburb of the Washington Beltway, there were a lot of my classmates who had parents in the military and in government. And so we were invested. It mattered to us even more than average. Okay. Um, and so we did learn a lot about, you know, where is Kuwait and where is the United Arab Emirates and all of these different places. Where is Iraq? What is the Persian Gulf? And I've still to this day got a pretty good understanding of that geography because of that class, because it mattered at the time. Gotcha. So there was some relevance and there was some intensity, mm-hmm. which made it memorable. Yes. Um, but it was still otherwise a fairly standard yeah. class in geography. And what you're mostly dealing with in a geography class is political boundaries and geographic features, because that's what's easy to test. But geography is a lot more than that. Geography is things like terrain. It's understanding that Italy is Italy because you have the Alps to the north and the Apennines running down the spine. And that affects things like the peoples that that went there and what kind of things that they can grow or not grow. Why did the Greeks settle in the south of the island and on uh, south of the peninsula and on Sicily, but not really go much further north? And what were the other peoples living there? And so it ties to history because history is formed by peoples living in places, doing things because you can or can't do something in a particular place. Greece is not great farmland. Therefore, the Greeks had to become sailors so that they could sail to places to get things that wouldn't grow well in Greece. Like grain. Correct. Which they got out of the Black Sea and Sicily and at times Egypt. Egypt. And what, what we're currently studying at the moment is Greek history, uh, ancient Greek history. And as we've been doing an intensive uh, course on the Peloponnesian War, what's fascinating is discover how much of the strategic regions came from the fact that you can't grow grain in Attica, the region around where Athens is. And that's again back to geography. And so our children are from the maps shown in the course getting a really good idea of that particular small part of the of the region of the relationship of Greece to the passage to the Black Sea by way of the Sea of Marmara. They're seeing how easy it is to get to Crete, to Sicily, how you have to sail to get around down to Egypt and that the ability to keep parts of Greece fed influenced where they would build colonies, what trade routes had to stay open. And that gets us back to geography, which is about where are these places in relationships to others and learning what they were called in different periods of history. And Thebes helped to reinforce that because it gives us Europe and most of the Mediterranean. And so the periods of history that we've been studying as we've studied ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia, into ancient Greece, we're preparing to next year tackle ancient Rome. Those areas are getting enforced and the and the archaeology that is done is mixed with the geography and gives us starting points to talk about the history that is the what comes out of those places. So we've discussed Thebes a little bit. We talked about some of the gameplay. Um, the fact that it's very accessible even to the youngest children because it's not primarily a text-driven game. It's primarily images. And for adapting to 
um, younger children, and by younger I'm talking, this is a game designed largely for teenagers and adults, two to four players. We tend to play it with um, our youngest right now is almost five, and he's been playing for about a year, and holding his own. Um, he likes being able to pull the, the chits out of the bag and, and help out. Doesn't quite have the attention span for a full game, so we usually partner up uh, him with one of us or one of the the old or the or our oldest. We talked a little bit about Thebes and its gameplay and kind of what appeals, um, the fact that our kids love it and will now pull it down and play it voluntarily. Uh, we've talked about some of the history and the geography. Are there any other games you can think of that you would want to recommend, or is that? Is that I think that's enough subject matter for another episode, to be honest. Oh, goodness. If we want to talk ancient history, we could probably give a year's worth of episodes. Um, yeah, I'm, I was thinking, I mean, just in terms of geography, I was thinking back to when I played Avalon Hill's Advanced Civilization as a, as a middle schooler, and I, I actually pulled it out and we played it this past weekend with the kids. Or actually, that was a couple of weeks ago we did that. Um... The the there's a there's a centerfold map in the rule book and Avalon Hill Games had very 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 exhaustive rule books in very tiny print, um, but they frequently had a really nice map with all of the regions labeled. They didn't print the labels on the map board you were playing on because it would get too cluttered. Um, but being able to discuss with the kids all of those those regional names, some of which are lost to history. Um, but we know them from his, from the historical record. Um, I can think of probably a dozen games at least, maybe two dozen that we own that just deal with geography. Mm-hmm. We were playing Fire and Axe a few weeks ago, and in that, the, the players take the role of, of um, uh, Norse, Norsemen uh, going out a Viking. Uh, getting in their long ships and going and either raiding or trading or settling colonies throughout um, the 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 islands and the lands surrounding Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are some interesting features with that. But again, giving some reinforcement of geography. Um, I know uh, GMT's um, Fire in the Lake, which covers the insurgency in Vietnam... Um, the, the Vietnam conflict, the whole map board is, uh, or this is a significant part of the map board, is that map of, of Vietnam mm-hmm. as it was in the, in the 1960s. Yes, and I think that's the thing. If you're looking for a game to reinforce geography, you almost have to start with, well, what kind of geography? Are you talk- and what period? What, t- what period? Are you talking about, can you recognize all of the modern... Um, all of the modern nation states that currently exist in the world, there's probably one way to do that. Are you talking general features? That's a different thing entirely. Uh, are you just trying to remember the the 50 United States? Honestly, I'd hand you a puzzle. I think I probably know most of the United States because of playing map puzzles. And a puzzle is a game. It's about figuring out where does something belong in a mix of, of things. And so you almost have to start with what is your goal before you go with what is the best way to achieve it. Well, you always have to begin with the end in mind. Exactly. So for us, where our goal is we're wanting to teach ancient history, 
our first starting point is, well, let's start at a place that both is familiar because the boundaries of Europe a century ago are roughly still where they are now, uh, especially in terms of major cities. And yeah. it gives us the places of here's where this was happening. Here's a world that's much closer to now. And this is our entry point into a world long ago when the names of the places were different. And here's the things that we discovered that led us to learn about that. And it also helps us to recognize that the names of countries change, but the place, its features stay the same. And that's conceptually a concept as far as geography goes that was one that we wanted to reinforce. And that's why Thebes is one of the games that as we started saying, all right, we're doing ancient history this year. What games can we play that give our kids a foothold into this place and as an interest in the things that we use to do, to learn about it and really dig into understanding these places thieves was where was one of the places we decided to start because it wasn't too stuck into the details because we've got the game presents the invitation and then the child can follow their own inclination to want to know more, their own curiosity that can be cultivated into studiousness. Yes. Through whatever piques their interest. Yes. Rather than having us sort of, you know, force ancient history or geography or whatever down their throats like some poor goose being fattened up for pate. Yes. Yeah, that image of a goose. Oh my goodness. So we hope you've enjoyed today's discussion. Um, all of the games that we have mentioned today, I will make sure do can be found in the show notes. Um, but here's the part of the show where we invite you to please talk to us. Is there more that you'd like to hear? Are there games that you've found uh, helped you with learning a place in the world and its geography? Is there more that you'd like to learn about ancient history and want to find out more games that can help with that as well? So you can write to us at playedpod at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at playedpod. We have a Facebook page now at playedpodcast. Please tell us your thoughts. And until next time, thanks for listening. Have a good one. Bye.